But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? That time Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the apostles might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. What is the core message of the Christian faith? What is Christianity at its very heart? That question arose in my mind this week as, and I'm sure you saw them too, many, many newscasts from different networks and so on began to talk about various news stories because, of course, it's Good Friday and Easter season. And during the week leading up to Good Friday and Easter, I'm sure you've noticed Network news and cable news will begin to feature stories about what Easter is about, what Good Friday was about, and what Christianity is about. And as I was reflecting on the question, what's the core message of, of Christianity, I saw a story by CBS News that talked about how the moral majority has sort of faded away and and become a dinosaur, that it really isn't having the influence in our nation anymore that it once had. And it was clear from the tone and the timber of the story that they really believed that this is what Christianity is truly about, to create a more moral society, to help us as 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 an American nation to really understand the difference between right and wrong and, and to follow that. And they could see this fading away, but they were also saying, you know, Christians, they always seem to have that sort of nose stuck up in the air attitude that look down on others, I'm holier than thou, and just be angry at the rest of the world. Is that the core message of Christianity? Anger at our world because our world is immoral and doesn't seem to understand what God says about right and wrong? Is the moral majority's message what Christianity is really, truly all about? Then I had someone send me an email with a video in it containing a different interview that was done by Bill O'Reilly. And in that particular story, they were also talking about what Christianity is about. And I I recall one line in there. In fact, it struck me so much that I wrote it down. Bill O'Reilly said, certainly if there's a heaven, you have to earn your way in. And he went on to explain, even though he was the interviewer, as Bill O'Reilly sometimes does, he He was doing a little bit more of the talking than the person that he was interviewing. And he went on to explain to this this poor person whom he was purportedly interviewing that, that judgment day is all about accountability. 
because God is a holy God. And the, and the chief thing that we need to remember about Christianity is that Christianity ultimately is a faith that is all about accountability. Moral majority. Bill O'Reilly, who, who, by the way, has written a book about Jesus called Killing Jesus. Are those the real messages about Christianity that, that we want people to know? More importantly, that, that Jesus wants people to know? Tonight, you're going to hear what we at Crosswalk teach as the core message of Christianity. And it is not going to sound very similar to the interview with Bill O'Reilly, nor is it going to sound very similar to something spoken by the moral majority. Tonight's message is going to be all about Jesus, not all about rules and morals. It's not going to be about how you can earn your way in. It's going to be about how someone has gifted you in to eternal life. And it all starts, ironically, with something that I think we, we sometimes, and especially if, if you haven't been a believer for, for long, or, or maybe you're just a guest tonight for the very first time, but maybe you've heard this, that Christians are all about guilt trips. And sin. And, and here's the thing that we all need to remember. You really can't talk about the core message of Christianity. And you really can't talk about Jesus unless you first begin with that small three-letter word, sin. Because if we don't understand the need for the first Good Friday, we don't understand the reason why Jesus hung on a cross, brutalized by the very worst that mankind could dish out to him in terms of of torture and death. You can't understand anything about Good Friday or Jesus and the crucifixion without the word sin. And that requires us to step back, really, and ask ourselves an important question on Good Friday. And that question is, do we have the humility to admit that we have done things that offend and anger God, that are not on the right side, the good side of the ledger, but far from it, are on the sinful side of the ledger, and those are the very things that Jesus needed to address? I told you that we'd be talking from Romans chapter 3, which in my mind is the place to understand the core message of Christianity. And look at that very first verse that is in your crosswalk notes. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, what the Bible tells us is that we have to expect... uh, Accept the hard truth that we have fallen short, that we are not able to meet God's holy standard, that we do not keep his commands, nor can we do so, and that this is a problem that has not just affected a few of us, 
but the entirety of us. If you read the whole book of Romans, you notice that he even comes at the believers of his day and say, why do you look down on others and claim to be a guide and a light to others, you who have believed for a long time, when you can't even yourself put into practice the things that you teach others to do? Man, what a powerful message for us Christians. What's the best trade you ever made? I think the best trade I ever made was I once traded a $1 bill for my very first car, a 1956 salmon-colored Mercury that ran perfectly. That was a great trade. I actually did a little Google search. Best, period, trade, period, ever, period. Usually said this way, best, Trade ever. Third article, Charles Barkley for Jeff Hornacek. Oh, yeah. The best trade ever for the Phoenix Suns because the year that Barkley came, the Suns went to the championship, played against Chicago. Maybe some of you remember it. Lost in six games. But... For who they gave away, and and of course now Jeff Hornacek is back as our coach, they made an excellent trade for Charles Barkley. No matter what you think about him as a person, he was quite the NBA player. But neither of those, a dollar for a salmon mercury, Jeff Hornacek traded away for Charles Barkley is the best trade ever. You know what the best trade ever is? Take a look at your crosswalk notes. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We like to call that the great exchange, the best trade ever, that Jesus took all of our sins on his shoulders and became sin in the sight of God, and then all of his perfection, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness was placed in us. Now when God sees you, he doesn't see you any longer because of the death of Jesus. As a sinner, you've traded with Jesus. And you are now righteous in the sight of God. Talk about the core message of Christianity. It doesn't get any more core than that great trade, the great exchange. And what did Jesus have to, have to suffer as a result of that trade? You know, it's easy, I think, sometimes for us to, um, to think how great it is that we get to experience grace. God is free with his grace. But the message of tonight is that while grace is free to us, it certainly didn't come cheap to Jesus Christ. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? One of the lessons of Good Friday 
is that sin always equates to pain and sin always equates to separation. And that is what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. The very separation of hell itself is being poured down on his shoulders as if the nails, the crown of thorns, the beating and torture that he'd endured was not enough. As Jesus bore your sins and mine, the very wrath of God poured down on him on the cross and he became fully separated from his father, something that he had never experienced. That was his end of this great exchange that won grace and forgiveness and peace and righteousness for you and for me. I want you to just in that very first fill-in write this. This is the truth of Good Friday. This is the core message. We are sin-filled to redeem us. Jesus became sin for us. Our second lesson is Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see what the outcome would be. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I tell all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now, Peter was out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives it away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
And he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And this is the word of the Lord. I was five. My dad had just been given a new responsibility to be officer-friendly in, in Burlington, Wisconsin. And I knew that I was dead meat. See, when my dad got the position, they gave him a number of the audio-visual things that would be needed to go around to the grade schools and get to know some of the kids and let them know that the police were their friends. And so he had all of this equipment at our house that night, and he told all of us, it's in the kitchen, on the table, just stay out of there and stay away from it. The problem is, is my smart mouth gets me in trouble and and did with my brothers. And the kitchen table was always the best place to run around to try to stay away from them. What I didn't know is that as I was running around the kitchen table with my brother right on my trail, that my dad had plugged one of the pieces of equipment into the wall and left it sitting on the kitchen table. So as I ran and that cord caught me, that cassette player flew up against the wall to a dozen pieces as it fell. And I stood there looking at it. My mom was usually the disciplinarian in my family. It was one of the only times, it might have been the only time that my mother ever said to me, wait till your father gets home. Didn't help for my brothers and sisters who are like, you are so dead, dad is going to kill you. And I did the one thing that a five-year-old could do that made sense. I went up to my room and I got a suitcase And I put my clothes in, and I started to run away from home. True, it's true. And and got out of the house and was on my way up to this hill a ways away where, where my brothers and I had a fort. It's something we understand, and that is when something breaks, someone's got to pay for it. And as a kid, a lot of times, if I couldn't pay for it, I would pay for it other ways. That'd be taken out of your hide. That's, that's what happens. That is a message we understand, and it's a message that God taught the children of Israel. The first passage from Exodus 20, 24a says, Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. What God was telling them is when there is sin, the sin that Jeff talked about, that God expects payment. And and, and that payment, he made in a very vivid way to show how serious he was about this payment. That, That imagine worship for these kids, especially it started for the boys when they were 12. The first thing that they would witness as part of their worship is they would watch a lamb. And I grew up on a farm and I saw this and I was scarred at a young age by it as well. If you've never seen an animal die, it's, it's not pretty. 
But when you watch an animal die that you know that there's a person there putting it to death and killing it, it's a whole nother world of blood everywhere. And that's what they did as they held the neck of that lamb and, and took the knife and, and caught the blood in a bowl. And, and the message was clear. You know why this lamb is dying? Because of your sin. Because of what you've done. If you want to talk about God being serious about payment, that's why this lamb is dying. But the problem is, is those payments and those sacrifices continued again and again and again. And all of that, that blood that was shed on those altars and all the sacrifice that was made did not pay for one sin, but simply showed the pattern of payment that needed to take place through a sacrifice. So then we go to Psalms, and, and what's the natural thing we go to next? If the animals aren't helping, how about human sacrifice? It says, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. So, yeah, I guess I could try to live a, a perfect and holy life and, and as a pastor try to be the sacrifice for your sin but it wouldn't do you any good. Even if I were to accomplish it, it wouldn't do any good. Because all that I would be doing is living the perfect life that God demands from me. The payment that he would expect from me. That's the sacrifice. That is what God expects of us. But again, all of this was a pattern. A pattern to teach them that payment needs to be made and the payment is made through a sacrifice. And in Romans 3, verse 25, we're told about that sacrifice. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. What that means is all of those people who sacrificed animals, you know how they were saved? They, they were saved by the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who is coming. He was the sacrifice of atonement. The result of that sacrament, or of that sacrifice, was that we would be at one with God. That's what atonement kind of means, is that we're at one. It's a, a sacrifice that brings people together. But the word atonement literally means to have you covered. My neighbor saw me running away and saw the suitcase and called my dad. And my dad came and got me and said, don't worry about it. I'll pay for the cassette deck. I have you covered. And when Jesus Christ came as the sacrifice, the Father has told us for the wrongs that we have done, for the sins that we have committed, he has you covered through the blood of Jesus Christ. In your blank, you can write, sin requires sacrifice as payment to God. Only Jesus is a sacrifice that brings atonement.
We return to the account of the Passion of the Christ at Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even in a single not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. What a story. What a story, what an account we're hearing tonight of a God so merciful, a Savior so loving that he would literally be willing to take the worst that mankind could dish out and bear up against it because of his love for us and his desire to win us over and to to give us heaven and forgiveness. As Pastor Jan just told us, a price had to be paid. 
And yet there was no greater desire in Jesus' heart for you and for me than to say, I've got him covered. I've got her covered. All their sins, the sins of the entire world, I've got them all covered. What an amazing message. And that, that, brothers and sisters, is the true core message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ came to cover us and to take away our sins and win everlasting life for us. And we are covered. But I, I would venture to guess that you... <laughs> that you know how it goes when you've been in a dispute, a disagreement, a conflict with someone, right? And, and you know that you were definitely a part of, of doing the wrong thing. The other person being sinful, maybe they did some wrong things too. Certainly that's not the case with God. We are the sinners. He is the holy and righteous one. But in cases where you in life, have gotten into a huge argument with your, with your spouse, with your children, with your parents. You know, don't you, that there's that awkward moment where you've come back together and you've, you've talked it out and you've even said, you know, what I, what I did, that was wrong. And I am, I'm sorry for it. Many of you if, you, if you had parents like mine, might have even gone through that, that moment where they, they take you up in their arms and they say, it's all forgiven. It's in the past. It's, it's done. Let's, let's move forward. You're forgiven. So what's the awkward moment? The awkward moment comes later when you go away for a little while and what you did wrong starts to play in your head again and you're, you're starting to think, I know they told me that I'm forgiven. I, I know I got that, that hug from dad. I know from, from what he said, his end of it is truly covered, but... Is it really? You see, what Pastor Dan told us is that God's attitude is squared away because Jesus covered for us. He, he took away our sins. He gave us his righteousness. But there's still the matter of our heart. God's heart we know. We are forgiven. But there's also the matter of us believing down to the God that we are truly children of God, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, completely forgiven of all of our sins, and that our guilt has been taken away. And that, that, friends, is not always easy to remember and especially to trust. And even though we hear the words, you're forgiven, there's still that feeling in your gut. What's going to happen next? Will God punish me? Will, will God somehow need to do something to me because of the sin that I have committed 
against him. How complete is that forgiveness really? And that's the beauty of what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. That those beatings that Jesus suffered that we just read about in the account of the passion of the Christ, those beatings, God the Father accounts as completely sufficient. Christ's death, completely sufficient. And now we can trust, not on the basis of anything we might do. You see, that's, that's the thing that we have to get over. It's, it's not about us at all. We have to fight the attitudes that, that as human beings we typically will have about God. And I'm guessing you've probably experienced them from time to time. Anger at God because you're convinced that he's still punishing you somehow. Fear of God because maybe you think in your heart of hearts that really he's... It hasn't been completely covered, and and you want to run away from God? Look, I see it as a pastor all the time. When people get caught up in a sin, and then all of a sudden, we don't see them at church for a while. And I've come to understand that sometimes all of us want to run from God in fear. And then there's the idea that goes through all of our heads that somehow if we really want God to forgive us, if we really want God to love and accept us, we must strive to please him. Take a look at what Paul writes. Where then is boasting? Is there any striving that we can do? To make any claims before God, if we think there is, we don't realize how far, how far short we've really fallen, Paul says. Boasting is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Will you take your pen and I want you to circle that word faith. And here's here's the key sentence in this verse. We maintain that a person is justified, that is, declared innocent by faith apart from the works of the law. God's heart is settled, and Paul says, let your heart be settled. Trust this. It is real, it is true, and it is complete. And what we are to trust is spelled out so beautifully in words that, as Jonathan told us at the beginning of this service, were written hundreds of years before Christ was even born from Isaiah. Turn your page over. If I say to you, have faith, your question should be, fine, Jeff, faith in what? Faith in myself? No, faith in Jesus. Surely he, Jesus, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then underline this next line. The punishment 
that brought us peace. Let your heart be at peace. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You, I, we, we have peace with God because our sins have been covered. And that, dear friends, is the core message of Christianity. Write this down. You and I, we have nothing to boast about before God except Jesus. He is the substitute that won our full reconciliation with God. No awkward moments with God. You're forgiven. You are fully reconciled with him. And you are his dearly loved child. Our final passion reading is the death and burial of Jesus. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head was the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone and see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, He gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs were broken open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and everything that happened... They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, 
who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception would be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. And they went out and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Are we good? It's a question sometimes I ask people after I go hunting with them. Are we good? And usually if they drive or if there's expenses that we have to split, that I I always like to ask that, are we good? Do I owe you anything? Because I don't want to be in a position where where I feel like I owe you or, or that you're upset with me that I haven't paid my share. So I ask, are we good? Are Are we okay? I guess we could ask that question with God that that the people at the time of Jesus could have asked the question, God, are we good? And the answer would have been a resounding no, we're not good. And probably the, the biggest reason that they could see that is when they would go to worship, there was that huge curtain. It's hard to see the curtains in here, but, but it, they would be like this, very thick, even thicker than these curtains. And that curtain divided God and his people. And the only one who could get through was a priest, a go-between, someone who went on your behalf to the most holy place, the place where God was, where no one could approach him because they were not good because of sin until this day. And that is why it was a, such a big deal where I read that when, when Jesus died, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And the first time ever in the history of 1,500 years of, of Judaism, people saw the most holy place, the place where God was. No longer was there a need for a priest because the barrier between them of sin was taken away. And that is why... Paul wrote in the book of Romans, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to us, which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this way to be right with God, this way that God says, you know what, we're good, we're okay, there's no debt, there's no payment, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That word justify, this being declared not guilty. Another way I like to say justify means it's just as if I never sinned. The debt is taken away. Titus In the letter to Titus, we are told, 
But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. That is what we have been celebrating today, is the payment. And so we see here the payment has been made for the world. That we are now right with God through this blood shed on the cross by Jesus Christ. But the final point that I want you to see is the one from Luke 23, verse 43. When Jesus is talking to one of the criminals who is on the cross next to him. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And now in a very real way that salvation won for all people became a, a personal possession for someone who is dying right next to Jesus. That this man, although dying on that day, was saved. That he would be spending an eternity with Jesus in heaven. And that is the same promise for you. And, and as you leave here today, that, that you look at this, the sacrifice that has been made has been purposeful, and it is effective, and it is paid in full, and it's for you. Go in peace, knowing Christ's payment has been accepted. You can write in the blank, Jesus makes me right with God and justifies me. Jesus makes me right with God and justifies me. Jesus is my savior and hero in my battle with sin. Tonight has been time for us to ponder the death of Christ and the price that he paid. I'm going to ask you to do something to close out this service that we rarely do here at Crosswalk. But tonight is an opportunity for us to do this. I'm going to lead us in prayer, but I would invite those of you who can uh, to turn around and kneel with the seats on your knees. I'm going to do that. And if you can't do that, if you've got a medical issue, if you can't kneel on your knees, I understand, just sort of kneel over in your chair. And we're going to confess our sins to the Jesus who forgives us. Father, you are a father of immense mercy and love. And we humbly come before you on this anniversary of Christ's death to thank you for taking pity on us in our lost condition, for loving us sinners so much that you delivered up your son to the cross for us all. Father, it pleased you to permit suffering and death to strike your son instead of us. And because of that, we know now we have full pardon for our sins and release from all punishment. We have been covered. Grant to each of us a true and abiding faith, a faith by which our sin-weary souls may find the peace our Savior promised, a peace which comes from being reunited with you, our Heavenly Father. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, with your triumphant cry of victory from the cross, it is finished, you said. With those words, you brought to a close your blessed work of redeeming us from all our sins. Our mortal tongues 
can never express all the praise that's due you for this gift of your love, your body given into death, your blood shed for our sins. What amazing joy, what hope, what comfort is ours in the midst of sin and affliction, knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we are redeemed through your sacrifice. May our hearts never stray from you and may we never cease praising you. Sprinkle our sins with your blood and blot out our many transgressions from God's sight forever. As long as we live, shower us with your grace, bestowing every needful blessing upon our souls and bodies. I want to give you a few moments now, just private moments with God, to confess or lay at the foot of the cross, give over to your Father, to Jesus, anything that you want to. Holy Spirit, your gracious life-giving power has awakened us from spiritual death. You have brought us back together by faith. Lord, grant that through faith in our crucified and risen Redeemer, that our sinful flesh, our desires, our sinful desires be crucified with Christ, that we die to sin and live to righteousness. Place in our hearts peace through the cross. Help us to also take up and bear our own crosses, just as Christ did, and confess his holy name. And as it pleases you to keep us in the true faith, may it also please you to bring the good news of Christ's victory over death to others, to the whole world, that together with us they may enjoy the life and the salvation which you want them to have to the glory of our Redeemer's name, the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, who together with you and the Father is to be praised forevermore. Amen. You may rise. Please stand and let's join together in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Our service is concluded.